there were a number of studies that came out that were shocking to me that had even been allowed to be published. So one was a paper that said, just from your face alone, we will infer criminality. So based on a photo of you, we're going to make some prediction on whether or not you are a criminal. Like, that is the definition of of visual stereotyping. Nothing to do with what you have actually done. This is not based on your actions. It's based on your appearance. Episode 83 with computer scientist Dr. Joy Bulamwini. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of Black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today, we have a truly remarkable guest. Joining us today is the brilliant Dr. Joy Bulemwini, a computer scientist, digital activist, and self-described poet of code, whose journey began at that temple of technology known as the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT for short. She's the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, a place where art and activism intersect to illuminate the social implications of artificial intelligence. She also has a book dropping on Halloween called, wait for it, Unmasking AI. How fitting is that? But her story isn't just about her prestigious academic credentials. It's also about the extraordinary transformation her creative journey has taken. In today's conversation, she reveals how her quest to create a digital filter, one that could change the reflection of herself in a mirror, led to a profound exploration of technology's hidden biases. What began as a creative endeavor quickly evolved into a mission to uncover the limits, implications, and ramifications couched within flawed artificial intelligence systems, which extend far beyond simple face-tracking technology. Dr. Bulamwini's journey, driven by her own curiosity and a desire to change the narrative, ultimately unveiled the coded gaze. In other words, the power, priorities, and preferences embedded within technology by its creators. This conversation is a testament to the transformative power of imagination and how one woman's pursuit of artistic expression led to the examination of systematic issues within technology. As she coined the term coded gaze, we'll explore its profound implications and the concept of the oppositional gaze, a counter-narrative challenging the coded gaze. She even gives us a director's cut story that didn't make it into her upcoming book. So prepare to be inspired, enlightened, and most importantly, informed as we journey through the world of innovation, ethics, and creative exploration with Dr. Joy. This is an episode that promises to challenge your perspective and leave you with a renewed sense of the boundless possibilities locked within you. Be sure to share some of your thoughts on today's episode with us over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. And if you haven't left us a review, well, as prophetess Erica Baidu said, 
times a waste in. This and more content is also over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And if you love what we're up to over here at the Institute, give us a little double tap on the support link in the show notes. And now get ready to shift the way we see technology, art, and social justice as you imbibe on this wonderful conversation with Dr. Joy Bulemwini. Okay. <laughs> hello, hello, Dr. Joy Bulemwini. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, I've been I waiting am... to arrive. Ooh. <laughs> well, girl, you're already there, but we'll get into that. Um, <laughs> so to begin, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Ooh, I'm going to dedicate today's conversation to a composer and cellist I just met named Niles Luther. Okay, Niles Luther, the cellist. This one is dedicated to you. So, Dr. Joy, what's exciting you right now? I have a book coming out on Halloween called Unmasking AI. And have you seen this cover? This cover is exciting me right now because there's so much symbolism behind it where the fingers are placed. The earring looks like a neural network, but also a face mesh. When you look closer, you see the texture of my hair. So there's this celebration of Afrocentric features. Then you have the iconic white glasses and the red blazer from congressional testimony. So all of the creativity that's gone into elevating women of color creatives while also telling my story really excites me about the book. You know, that's actually a really wonderful place to start. So obviously, we will speak about AI, we'll speak about um, your book, right, Unmasking AI. But like, even as you describe this cover and like the symbolism and the meanings behind it, it signals to me that... Dr. Joy Bulamwini is more than just a research head sitting in a lab. Talk to us a little bit about your creative interests and where that comes from, because you know we we contain multitudes, right? And so, what what are the kind of interstitial creative aspects of Dr. Joy that inform the way you move through the world and even the creation of this cover? Or as exemplified in the creation of this cover. Yes. So I consider myself an artist in many ways. So there's definitely the visual art aspect as well as art through words, which this book allowed me to get into. And also being the daughter of an artist and scientist, I was so privileged to grow up literally going to my mom's studio, right? And seeing her being enraptured or seeing her go to different art galleries and pitch her work, which I didn't even know that was what was happening. I was like, oh, this is what we do on the weekend, right? Paintings loaded up. My mom painting some story of, you know, why she's committed to this work. And so I I was just a 
encouraged so much from a very young age to fully express myself in many different ways. And sometimes that was through music. Sometimes that was through um, sports um, as well. So I, there's a kinetic energy to what I do. I love that. I, I love that, you know, I think we have, I don't know, I think we just have a cultural understanding of like what a scientist looks like or like what a scientific life looks like. And I think you in many ways exhibit why like diversity, not even just in skin tone, but like diversity of thought and lived experience is like so necessary in this area. Mm. But speaking of this area, let's get into that area. So you have a new book, Unmasking AI. Could you provide an overview just of your journey in the field of algorithmic bias and AI ethics? Like what inspired you to focus on this area of research and then also advocacy? Absolutely. That's such a great question because how I got into my research that ends up looking at discrimination in AI systems and harmful uses of AI systems actually started through creative practice. I got to MIT, I was a graduate student there, and I was so excited to take this class called Science Fabrication, the kind of class you take at a place like the Media Lab. <laughs> Read science fiction, build something you've always wanted to build. And so I wanted a shapeshift, but there are always constraints, right? We had six weeks till the deadline and I wasn't changing any of the laws of physics in that time period. I'm not that smart, right? So <laughs> I said, okay, what can we do? Maybe instead of shape, changing my physical shape, I can change the reflection of me in a mirror, right? And so in doing that exploration, I was able to find an interesting um, material called half-silvered glass, that if you had something black in the background, it looked just like a mirror. And then if light came through, you would see it in the reflection. And so using that idea, it became like a digital filter, but instead of it being a filter on your phone, it was a filter in your mirror. And it looked Dope. really cool. But I wanted it to actually follow my face. Like, why stop there? Right. Why stop there? Let's see what else we can do. Right. The creative <laughs> side. So now I want it to track my face as I'm moving. So it's not like I'm having to line myself up like I'm at a theme park. Right. right. But now it's moving with me. And so that's when I started exploring face tracking uh, technology. And when I tried to get the face tracking technology to detect my face, there were some problems, to say the <laughs> least, right? And I literally found myself putting on a white mask, hence coating in white's face in a place that was supposed to be, for me, the epicenter of innovation. I'd finally arrived at MIT at Media Lab, right? And it was just such a jarring experience that this technology I was enamored by wasn't exactly made for people quite like me. And that's what started this excavation that then uncovers all kinds of biases in AI systems that go beyond face tracking, whether we're talking about hiring, right? Deciding who gets a loan, deciding who gets into college. So I find it interesting when tracing back this journey that it started with an artistic exploration, and then followed on curiosity to ask, why is this happening? Mm. What's more is behind this? And so that led to my research and testing various facial uh, recognition technologies, including gender classification from 
all kinds of tech companies. Um, but I'm trying to figure out like how to like like hook around <laughs> hook around this response yeah. because you know in in reading the book like this had actually happened a couple of times but you mm. didn't think about it or you didn't recognize right like what was happening like you didn't necessarily question why your face wasn't picked up in other attempts not specifically for this creative um, practice. I- but like yeah. other but other attempts but this one specifically and there was a reason why that mask was in your space at the time why did you have that mask come again for me that last part didn't come through if you don't mind repeating oh yeah i was saying you know there was a specific you know there were other times right where this technology didn't work for you but you didn't question it but this particular time you had that white mask in your room why it was kind of a result interestingly enough this book is coming out on halloween and the reason that that mask girl i told you i read the book like there's a <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a reason that that mask was there like what was like what was happening why why now why, uh, well, it's actually a good point that you bring up. This wasn't my first time running into issues with tech on my face. When I was an undergraduate, I was working on social robots and trying to get a robot to play peekaboo. Peekaboo don't work when your robot don't see you. And my <laughs> robot didn't see me, but I had a roommate. So my roommate's face worked. They did the demo. I went on to the next thing I was doing. And also at that point, it was... In my mind, these technologies are in the lab. We're still trying to figure it out. By the time I get to grad school and I'm doing the whole coding in the white face situation, I'm now reading reports where police are starting to use facial recognition technologies. And so in the past, I was like, yeah, this isn't really my problem or somebody else will fix it. It'll get better. Years later, I'm encountering the same problem, and now they're actually using this technology in high-stakes situations. And then there was this election that happened, right? So I was like, okay, I might need to do my part, (laughs) do my part and step up. And maybe there's a reason that I've had all of these varied experiences and opportunities to speak, you know, but I was hesitant to, I didn't want to be that person talking about race and bias and tech. I wanted to build the cool tech. That's why I came to MIT in the first place. I wanted to escape the world and all of these isms and messy people. That's why I got into computer science, right? So here I am, the very thing I wanted to do, be in this creative, expressive space when I'm trying to do that. The tools themselves are letting me know the systemic ways in which we are excluded, even to the um, level of the technology itself. So the things I would rather ignore or minimize, I'm not able to. It's literally... I'm looking at the coded gaze, like you have the male gaze and the white gaze, and I'm putting on this white mask. But to your question, why did I even have a white mask? It was Halloween time, (laughs) and a friend had invited me to an event. (laughs) And she said to bring masks, right? So because of that, I brought this, I bought this white mask with one of my friends, um, And so when I got to my office after our little girl's night out situation, that's why I happened to even have a white mask 
in my room in the first place in the office there. So it was a little bit of a misunderstanding situation, but here we are. It worked out. <laughs> Happy accidents. So funny. And actually, that was really, you know, a delicious segue because, you know, you mentioned something called the coded gaze. It's something that you bring up in the book. Um, and yeah, right. We've heard of these different types of gazes, the coded or the male gaze, uh, the white gaze. But what exactly is the coded gaze? So the coded gaze reflects the power, priorities, uh, privileges, and also preferences of those who have the power to shape technology, just like the male gaze, those who have the power to shape what's worthy, right? Just like the white gaze, those who have the power to shape who's valuable. And so these are cousin concepts. The coded gaze can include a male gaze and a white gaze and a post-colonial gaze, but it's this understanding that there are people behind the code and who those people are and what their standpoint is influences the type of technology that's being made. But also it being, casting it in this gaze face or phase of it, I'm also thinking what is the oppositional gaze to the coded gaze as well. And so that comes in with these ideas of things like counter demos, counter demonstrations that become counter narratives to the sophistication of tech. So the coded gaze is met with the oppositional gaze to say, here's who I am and my standpoint matters. Mm. And like let's let's get down a little bit into like the nitty-gritty. Like can you explain like the methodology you use to detect and analyze bias in algorithms? Like what are some of the, the key indicators or red flags that you look for? And I know this goes kind of into large data sets of information and whatever, but yeah. unpack it all. Take us there. Yes, it's a great question. So after I'm coding in a white mask and I have questions, how do I actually turn that experience into a research project or exploration? So it really started with this question of how do we uh, train machines to see in the first place? And so when it came to gender classification systems, the type that try to guess your gender presentation, right? Uh, I looked into the ways the systems were created and they were created using machine learning techniques. So machine learning is one approach to artificial uh, intelligence. And the way machine learning works, like the name says, it's learning from something. So it's learning from a data set. So in this flavor of AI, you can think of AI being a type of pattern recognizer. So the pattern we're train, training this AI model to recognize is the pattern of a face. And the way we train that pattern is by providing many examples of a face and also examples of things that aren't Here's a face, here's a face, here's a face. So think of the training data as your experience. Maybe you only grew up in Connecticut, right? And you didn't see that many diverse faces, right? Or you grew up, or the faces you saw were particular type. Maybe you grew up, uh, I don't know, rural Ghana, and you only saw a particular type of face. Either way, there are faces you're going to be more tuned to recognizing the pattern of, right? And so you have that kind of thing happening with uh, machine learning systems. 
So even though that's the case, oftentimes when you are going to use an AI system, you're not told the limitations. You're set, what you get is, here's a face recognition system. Here's a system that's going to guess your gender. And so there's a universal assumption, right? This is general purpose technology, so it's meant to work for everybody. And that's what I assumed when I would download these systems. It said gender classification. It said face tracking. <laughs> I have a face, right? You know, I identify within some of these gender boxes, etc. So I'm assuming the way it's presented is going to work for me because I too am human. And when I was having these experiences, when it wasn't working for me, but it was working for others, I wanted to see if it was just my unique experience or if there was a larger pattern that might be a pattern of bias or a pattern of discrimination. So then I really, then I was like, all right, let me put my research hat on. I got all this time anyways. I'm a graduate student. This is what we do. We do the research. And so I started looking at the ways, if we know how AI systems are trained, right, to recognize patterns, then we want to know how well they accomplish what they were trained to do. And to do that, you have benchmarks, right? And so based on the benchmarks, you're like, okay, here's some data you never saw before. Let's see how you perform. That's the benchmark system. What was confusing for me at the time I was doing my research is the benchmarks seem to indicate that these systems were getting better and better. So I'm like, so why am I coding in a white face? Meanwhile, saying 97%, hmm. <laughs> so I actually looked at the benchmarks. And when I looked at the benchmarks, some of them would be 80% lighter skinned individuals or 70% uh, men. And I was like, oh, if our measures for success themselves are skewed, we're going to have a false sense of progress. And not just for facial recognition, right? Now we have to excavate any type of machine learning system that's been trained on a sample of humans that don't represent all of humans and then have been evaluated on a benchmark of humans that aren't representative. And so the more I dug into it, the more I saw that the benchmarks that were considered the gold standard were pyrite, fool's gold, right? And so we usually don't question the status quo. That's the benchmark. That's the standard. Why are you questioning? Well, it wasn't working for me, so I got to question everything now. And so in doing that questioning, I realized I actually have to change the measure of success. And I changed the measure of success by creating a new benchmark that included us right? A benchmark that included more darker faces, a benchmark that included more people who identified as women. And in doing so, now that you have a test that reflects more of humanity, though it wasn't the most comprehensive, just enough to prove the point, now we struggle. Uh oh, now, now that system that looked like it was on a 97%, now you're at 68 That was a drop. That was a drop. Right. You know, and that was the other thing that I learned was so many of the tests that were done were on the entire data set. So you could hide under all the pale males if you had, let's say, 66% of that data set was represented. And I saw for some major data sets, women of color like me were 4.4%. So even if you failed on all of the women of color, you'd still be in the 90s looking good. 
the benchmark that I created was more balanced in those ways. And so you couldn't hide under the cover. So you, we looked at the overall numbers, but then we broke it down by gender and we broke it down by different skin types. And then we're like, okay, Crenshaw, we hear you with intersectionality, <laughs> right? And so Shout out to Kimberly a, Crenshaw. <laughs> shout out, former AJL board member, much gratitude, right? And so taking her work and saying, oh, what would it look like if we didn't just do single access analysis? Because even if it works better on women's faces or men's faces than women's faces or vice versa, lighter faces than darker faces, that doesn't mean the way it's going to work with uh, darker skinned men and darker skinned women is going to be the same or lighter skinned women and lighter skinned men. So when we broke that down, we saw those differences and the intersectional analysis gave us an even deeper story. And so that was the process I was going through as a graduate student, first, like, why isn't it working on me? But that was the starting point for something where now we're gathering, you know, over a thousand faces to test a system. And then I was like, oh, this isn't just me. It, it wasn't just me. <laughs> well, I, and, and so from like, to kind of bring it down to earth, like, what and then in what ways, because of that skewed data set or that skewed benchmark, like what are the kind of real world effects of that? Like mm -hmm. how does that show up in our lived experience? That's such a great question. So why does it matter if this data set is skewed, right? Or these benchmarks are off. So when you have this false sense of progress, there's also a false sense of confidence in the capabilities of AI systems. And we've seen this with the adoption of facial recognition systems by law enforcement. So in 2016, when I shared that experience of coding in a white mask, one of my concerns was that we were going to see false arrests because of people being misidentified. 2020, we have the story of Robert Williams being arrested in front of his two young daughters and his wife with, you know, neighbors looking on, right? Cock car pulled in. We got a story to tell, you know, that kind of thing for a crime he did not commit. And when he went to, when he actually talked to the police, the photo they pulled up was of a man who was black. Yes, but did not. I was like, he's like, we're both black, but that's about it. Like, this, <laughs> this is not my twin. <laughs> you know, they didn't look alike. Or even more recently, you had the story of Portia Woodruff, false arrest, eight months pregnant for a carjacking. Who's who's carjacking eight months pregnant, <laughs> right? But this now you're putting not just her life at risk, but also her baby's life at risk. And there's this default to, well, this is what we got from the machine. So there's this confirmation bias on top of a racial bias that's already existing uh, within the system where you're not even putting two and two together. Eight months pregnant, carjacking happening, probably not the pregnant person. And the suspect described was not described as being pregnant. <laughs> 
So this is where we go from my coding in a white mask, Halloween, etc., to real world implications. Now we have people sitting in holding cells because of false facial recognition systems, all of these skewed data sets and skewed benchmarks. Um, but also not just that, the lack of any policies or protections. Yeah. So who's governing the use of AI? And as it stands today, we still have no federal laws, right, that govern the use or restrict the use of facial recognition uh, technology. So it does mean uh, law enforcement um, can use it in this way. But you do have cities like uh, Boston and Cambridge and elsewhere that have put in uh, specific restrictions so that what happened in Detroit where multiple of these false arrests have happened due to misidentifications, that's not a process that would even happen in the first place. So the laws do make a difference, but we need to make sure you don't have to make you don't have to live in Cambridge to be protected, right? It should be what is the true case for everybody. You know, so I'd say, also yeah. oh, sorry, keep going. Yeah, I. I and sometimes I think of the faces, the final frontier of privacy, because there's so many other ways you can, you, sure, we're being tracked on our phones, right? But you can leave your phone at home. When's the last time you left your face at home? <laughs> Right. I mean, it depends. It well, depends. I don't know. I don't know. My my grandmother would, you know, say weird stuff like, you know, let me go put my face on. So obviously, you can leave it somewhere. But even to that, I started thinking about what does the future look like when people have prosthetics and other things. If you have a mass surveillance state, so that your true face is never actually seen in public. I could see a future where you have face alterations and prosthetics and so forth to avoid surveillance. Well, girl, we won't get into that, but we'll have an <laughs> offline conversation about that. Also, I leave my mask at home. <laughs> <laughs> also, like low-key, the face recognition thing, I don't know if it's good or bad, but when I clicked on one of my X's in my iPhone, it pulled up a couple of other X's thinking that they were the same person. And I was like, either you all need to change your algorithm or I really do have a type because <laughs> I was pissed. Okay, can I, can, you, can I tell you a story that got cut from the uh, book? Yes, because Ooh, I, I do. I do listen to my editors when they tell me this might not be for this book, right? But, <laughs> but since you know we're we're, we're among friends, I was when I was working on the gender shades, all this research, right, showing racial bias through skin type bias and um, gender bias, all of that. During the summer, you know, I'm procrastinating. I'm a student. I'm not trying to... I need to do my work, but, you know, I'm a little distracted. So I'm scrolling on Facebook, and an ad for a dating website comes on. And I don't have to... I should be working on my stuff, right? But I'm looking for distractions. So they got me at the right time. Weak moment, weak moment. <laughs> Algorithms got me. So I tap, I download the app, and the app requires you upload photos to be verified before you're let on the app. 
So I upload my go-to photo, which I think captures my essence as an artist. I'm in a little bit of a profile thing. I'm not really looking at you, so I look mysterious. What, whatever is in my head that I feel that image represents me, that's the image I've chosen, right? <laughs> I upload this one, and it says face not detected. I'm like... Okay, given what I know about computer vision, it could be the angle of my head. It could be the fact that there are all of these occlusions. I have a scarf on. So I I justify why the first one didn't work. So then I upload a photo where I am looking straight at the camera, the lighting, everything is perfect. And it still says face not detected. (laughs) So after the second time, I was like, you know what? I should go back to working on my, uh, I should go back to the research, right? I was like, yo, this could affect your love life, right? You know, so there were other stakes that I had not considered on the uh, facial analysis technology uh, side of things. And so I was thinking of this notion of FML, failed machine learning, failing freedom, money, love. So yes, if you're being tracked and then arrested. Your freedom (laughs) has been uh, failed. You have uh, AI systems being used in uh, hiring situations. There was this one company that said, based on video analysis, we can infer your problem-solving abilities and so forth. And they trained it on prior people who had performed well. Which meant, you know, you could probably figure out where that goes, right? And so now it's messing with your money, your economic situation, or if you're denied a a loan, right? Also messing with your economic situation. So I had the F and the M, but the L came in when I had that loss trying to upload two photos (laughs) to a dating website. And I'm thinking, wow, I hadn't even thought through all of the other areas that are part of living because you can also say, yes, there's the dating app, sure. But also when AI systems are mitigating our relationships, who we're getting connected to and who we're not. And that also influences your life chances. So that was another, uh, again, this was cut. (laughs) But now you know, it might have gone into the book. So if there's ever an author's cut... (laughs) Appendix on appendix, you know, that's one of the. Well, you know, I, I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack, you know, that you said. I think one, you know, as it pertains to like dating and love life, you know, it is shown like OkCupid okay published uh, a book of their findings, right? On their data set, right? Because a lot of these things are, a lot of these dating apps are really just data collection companies in disguise trying to leverage like your need for companionship but we won't get into that but essentially <laughs> you know okay cupid published that like Wait, i have to re- i have to repeat uh, that you said they are data gathering <laughs> operations in disguise monetizing your need for companionship yes <laughs> that's I- one way to describe a dating app i'm not saying you wrong i didn't say okay. any lies were detected did i okay thank you um <laughs> Um, but like they published that like black individuals, both male and female, received twenty five percent less matches yeah. across the board. Across mm-hmm. the board, um, and but they don't get a twenty five percent discount on the app. You know That's what I mean? And so That's why am I paying full point. price for a seventy five percent? You know servicing app but then also you mentioned um 
Oh, there was another thing. Oh, right. This um, facial awareness as it pertains to, you know, jobs, right? Um, And how companies are trying to use this kind of pseudoscience of Mm. chronology that we've already tried, right? Like we try, they tried that in the, you know, in the 19th century with Bertillon and saying like, we can, we can figure out your criminality by the shape of your face and by the shape of your nose. Mm-hmm. And the artifacts of that are actually why we still, to this day, take mud shocks from the front and the side. The side mm-hmm. so that they can use this, well, they don't use it anymore, but it comes from this kind of pseudoscience criminality where they thought they could measure your criminality by the shape of your nose. And so I found that to be quite jarring when I read that in your book, you know, that like, did we, did we, did we not learn, you know, over a hundred years ago? No, we are. Yeah. (laughs) It's just new technology. Past past is prologue. So I was, there were, a number of studies that came out that were shocking to me that had even been allowed to be published. So one was a paper that said, just from your face alone, we will infer criminality. So based on a photo of you, we're going to make some prediction on whether or not you are a criminal. Like, that is the definition of of visual stereotyping. Nothing to do with what you have actually done. This is not based on your actions. It's based on your appearance. The other one that I thought was extremely dangerous was we will guess your sexuality from face. And uh, some researchers did a further investigation. And, for example, they noticed that some of the things that the system was picking up on, like, for example, with lesbians, they noticed that there was a shadow on a particular side of the head. And it turned out, okay, well, some of these women are wearing hats, right? And so it's like different signals can be picked up to make inferences, but you can't make a stereotype, a judgment, you know? But that's what is happening. So are there visual cues that a system can be trained to pick up on that might have some likelihood of guessing? Sure. But you have to understand systems are guessing. And so that gaydar could be off. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not as though they have the most diverse training sets in the first place. But even if you did, to have a tool like that and to understand that, I believe there are There's still many countries in the world, right, where you can lose your life, right, based on the assumed uh, sexuality and so forth. So it's also quite dangerous when you don't think of it as, oh, this is just a playful toy. This is something somebody could use to justify harming you by saying, you never said anything, but this algorithm claims X, Y, Z. Yeah, I want to actually want to circle back and then I want to go forward. You know, as you were speaking about, um, you know, police and false arrests in relation to um, the the algorithmic bias in facial recognition technologies, it really, it really makes me consider and think about the role of technological innovation 
And particularly institutions like MIT, um, which are considered, you know, quite prestigious, right? I mean, I've taken classes at MIT, like I really love the school, but the ways in which these kind of like nascent technologies end up in the hands of law enforcement, right? Like, like was the, like, or, you know, you know, how, you know, discovering atomic energy produces an atomic bomb. Like, are, like, are researchers thinking about the sociological components of the technologies that they create in that act of creation? Because it seems that state power specifically mm. is at the forefront of siphoning off new technologies with completely cascading deleterious effects. My experience in my training and education in computer science was rare that at Georgia Tech as an undergrad, I had an ethics course. The ethics course didn't really look at the ethics of technology. It was ethics in general, right? You know? And so, but to say we should keep this in mind as we're going. But that was one of few, one of one of, it might have been one of one or one of two. So that was really rare, even in 2012 when I was graduating. And this was, I took this course while I was in a, doing a study abroad in Barcelona. I'm not saying I didn't show up to class, but I'm just like, it, this wasn't like a, the core requirement to pass the thing. You know, it, you needed to get the credit, but it was a, it, it was not central. It was the last thing you did on your way out, but it was more than most were doing. I'd say the majority of um, computer science uh, programs, this hasn't been part of the curriculum or the equation even in the last three years. It, we're, we're just now seeing it be adopted. Actually, I was at a friend's place um, and her daughter, who's an undergrad, um, as studying computer science, decided to take a master's level course. And she was reading about the white mask experience. And so now we're starting to see, particularly with this turn and wide awareness of AI, its potential, but also its perils. Now it's starting to infiltrate uh, the curriculum. But as I was writing the book, I was reflecting on how much Part of what drew me to tech was not or thinking I didn't have to think about society. I wanted to be in the cocoon. I wanted to be in the future factory dreaming unconstrained and let somebody else think about the consequences. So the, it, there was a naive approach to it to think that's not really my problem. Like my, my focus is seeing what's possible, not thinking about if that's possible, then what does that mean? I didn't go further, <laughs> right? Just can we make it, not should, you know, or the wider impacts um, of it. So, and I I wasn't, it's not that, I know I look young, but it's not, it, there's some time. Some time has passed, but I will say from what I saw with even talking to tech teams at, tech companies, it was not this intentional, pernicious, we're going to encode discrimination. Yeah, It was exactly. convenience sampling or something I call power shadows. We're going to take the photos that are most readily available. 
So let's say we're going to take the photos of uh, public figures who hold political office. Uh Uh-oh, next thing we got the shadow of the patriarchy, right? Who's more likely to hold power? So it's not so surprising when you collect face data sets based on convenient sampling that you end up with more men, right? How do you end up with more lighter-skinned individuals? Who gets more airtime, right? And so that's another piece uh, that factors into it um, as well. And so I... In my explorations and talking with many different tech companies, it was not intentional. But as we know, intention does not (laughs) change impact. Yeah, it's what they say the road to hell is paved with. The good Mm -hmm. ones. (laughs) That's what they say. (laughs) Good bricks of intention. Um, You know, and I also, you know, I also think that there's this, you know, this is a much larger discussion and I won't spend too much time on it. But really, like the religion of science um, mm. and the ways in which we as a society, you know, kind of from, you know, the discovery of heliocentrism have really siphoned our, the, the subjective experience off to this kind of like magical logic that exists, you know, in the stars and the universe. And in many ways, is a result uh, or, or, or shows up in police officers literally siphoning away their own intellection to a machine. Right. Yeah, like I, this, this yeah. is how, this is how quote unquote AI will take over. Right. That's being hyperbolic, obviously, but like, you know, this, this kind of, this kind of fealty and reliance on this one way of seeing this narrow way of seeing um, mm-hmm. as as truth total. Mm-hmm. I think of this uh, term from uh, Dr. Ruman Chandri, uh, where she talks about moral outsourcing. Mm. So it's, Come on. it's much easier, right, to in- put money to invest in technological tools for policing versus thinking through how do we create societies where there's opportunity to flourish, where there's economic opportunity, where there's healthcare, so that we don't have these conditions in the first place. It is easier to say, let's buy the RoboCop. Yeah. Right? And back to the moral outsourcing side of it, when you are faced with challenging decisions— You'd rather say, it told me what to do, because then you can wipe your hands clean. And so it's very tempting to rely on the machine because you have a fallback as to why you made that decision versus having to take the accountability yourself. And so we do see this moral outsourcing. And I love that term because I do think it captures some of what is going on with the adoption of technological systems. Sometimes also it's the rhetoric of efficiency, right? Machines can process data to a level that humans can't, which is true. But we also forget so much of what we ourselves know, where you're putting aside your common sense, right? Uh, Eight-month pregnant woman probably is not doing a carjacking, right? And relying on uh, a technological system. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to get to this next point, but girl, you got me going. But like also, I think 
In many ways, like if we look at these these data sets, the out in these algorithms, in many ways they are mirroring, right? Like they're they're actually mirroring back to us a society, or at least what the inputs are. Um, and when I think even of you know police officers and you know even killings. Like we also don't think of ourselves as independent operating algorithms. You kind of mentioned before, like if you're in a rural tribe in Ghana or you know a suburban um, environment in Connecticut, the data set that you've been trained on is also very narrow, right? Like so you can uh, detect nuance in a very small range, but because of the lack of diversity, it hinders your ability to make more kind of like broad-based decisions. But like when I think of, you know, police officers, if we think about media, if we think about movies, if we think about television shows, who shows up as criminals? Who shows up as dangerous? And so when I am in a situation of like heightened anxiety and I have a gun in my hand, we kind of disregard the data set that that individual has actually been taken up in their entire life, right? We as an American culture have mm. all absorbed this very specific and narrow and decided upon data set of who is dangerous, what bodies have value, what beauty looks like. And so I think this idea, this conversation around algorithms actually has much broader implications, but also gives us a language through which to understand the way we even come to be, right? The, the ways in which we even have preferences around who we're mm. attracted to, who we are not, right? Like yeah. those environments are also not benign. But I just wanted to get that out there. Let's but talk I, about oh go come on. I come want on. I, I want to continue. <laughs> if if you're going out, then I get to a okay, little girl, bit. Okay, 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 So when I partnered with Olay for the decode the bias uh campaign where we were Congratulations about by the way. Thank you. Where we were talking about beauty bias, it came back to that question of representation, right? When you search beautiful skin, beautiful face, beautiful woman, beautiful person, beautiful man, who are you going to see represented, right? And that is the coded gaze in your search results uh, right there. But it is, like you were saying, it's a reflection of society in many ways, one thing that I've been thinking about lately, there was a Bloomberg uh, uh, article that came out where they did a data investigation of an image generation system, image generator. And they would put in a prompt like CEO, social worker, janitor, banker, you know, that kind of thing, architect, etc., and so you can double check the exact ones they put, but you get the point. Who do you think was represented as the CEO? Who do you think was represented as the social worker? So you might say, okay, it's the assumption was these systems reflect what's happening in society, right? So you're going to have more white men who are in CEO roles in the U.S. context, et cetera. What the study showed was it actually amplified the bias. And it makes sense when you think about it if these systems are probabilistically determining what the output should be. So that's what I that's what I've been thinking about. It wasn't just that it's a direct reflection of society. It's taking that skew and compounding it further. Because now let's say the next systems 
are trained on this new data set that's been created by this AI, which then is further skewed and then is further skewed. And so for so often, I have heard this refrain that, yes, we are biased. And so it's not so surprising that the systems we create are also biased. It's reflecting the status quo. It's doing worse than the status quo and entrenching it in ways that are presented as neutral. And that's extremely dangerous. Mm. Absolutely. Um, okay, so let's 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 talk a little bit about young joy. <laughs> I'm still young. Oh, you can't baby joy, baby joy, baby. Okay, baby joy. Um, <laughs> yes, AJ, nothing but a number. Um, you grew up <laughs> in Oxford, Mississippi. Um. <laughs> I mean, you ended up at Oxford later, but you grew up in Oxford, Mississippi, the daughter of immigrants. Talk to us a little bit about that environment that you grew up in and what first sparked your interest in exploring science. Yes. So I was born in Canada. So I came from the cold weather, but quickly when I was two, we moved to Ghana. So, you know, I was reminded of who I am. <laughs> and my first language is uh, Chi and actually lived uh, with my grandmother in Ghana. So my earliest memories are in Ghana. And then apparently I had parents who showed up and I had to be connected with them, right? So I ended up back in the United States and um, my dad was a professor at the time at Ole Miss. We were calling it Ole Miss, so you can tell we weren't from around here. <laughs> they like, oh, that's the other type of black those are immigrants. <laughs> right? And Ole I noticed, That's hilarious. Ole, yeah, Ole Miss, here we are. Um, anyhow, so I'm so I am in, I'm growing up as an immigrant kid, first gen immigrant. My parents are trying to figure out the American US system the same time I am and my uh, you know so it, for me, what I realized was my parents' racial consciousness was different from mine because of where they had grown up. Like when you're in a majority place where people look like you, like even saying that we're black wasn't, like you would talk about which tribe you are because everyone's black for yeah. the most part kind of thing. So it's just, it was different language for it. We quickly realized in the U.S. we're black, right? They'd, when they stop me, when the police stop, they're not asking me if I'm Ashanti. That's not <laughs> what it is. Like, you're, even if you didn't think you were... And I saw this even when I was in the U.K., you know, studying just how people identify, yeah. right, with the notion of blackness <laughs> and how it changes depending on where you are and how sometimes immigrants think they're not black and then they then they find out, no, you, here you're black, right? But somewhere else you might have been colored or somewhere else you didn't identify with that sort of categorization. So anyways, I found that all interesting, but I was four when I moved to the United States. So I grew up... <laughs> understanding racial dynamics in the South in a way that wasn't part of my parents' 
experience. I'm not saying there wasn't colonialism, right, or the shadow of that. I am acknowledging it was different. You know, and so I think it took me a I had to reflect back and understand, oh, some of that stuff that happened was really racist, right? But I maybe interpret it in a different way because so too did my parents. And then at some point I started realizing, okay, something something is a little uh, off here. Having been in the States for decades now, they definitely have a different <laughs> vantage point. <laughs> Right. But I will say in terms of how it influences my research, I think it gives a bit of a benefit of a doubt. Right. I'm like, okay, I'm suspecting it might be because of this, but let me try all of these other areas. And I have the data to be like, yep, it really is because (laughs) because of this um, as well. But also, I grew up with my curiosity so nurtured and encouraged. My mom being an artist, her art supplies becoming my toys. You know, I was having too much fun. My dad being a scientist, bringing me to his labs, right? And there I was feeding cancer cells and other types of things. So science tech never seemed foreign to me. We had computers all over my house. You know, and like I grew up with a computer lab and fixing things. So it was it was not this sense of this is something other that I cannot touch or embrace or isn't for me. It was, oh, if you're curious, explore it. And I I didn't know anything else. That was the environment that I was so fortunate to grow up with. And because of that, it gave me the confidence to say, yes, I want to pursue computer science and I want to learn how to program, et cetera, and to go for it, despite oftentimes being the per- the only person who looked like me, right, in many of the programs that I was a part of and I was still having fun. The other thing I figured was, oh, I can make a little bit of money or economic benefits. So I was building websites for my basketball team and my track team so I could get free kit, you know, and so a little bit of a trade-off. So I was like, oh, okay, there's a, some nice economic potential with some of these. <laughs> tech skills as well. But even that, that was my dad encouraging me to, because I'd like to do stuff for free, right? He was like, oh, they asked you to design this? How much did they pay you? I was like, oh, I volunteered. He's like, why are you volunteering? (laughs) You should be be paid for that. So then I started a little web design company when I was in high school because of my dad asking me why I was doing all of this stuff. For free, right? So all of these little nudges um, from my uh, parents, a lot of parental guidance along the way, but this sense of you are capable, you are worthy, you are smart, go for it. And I truly value having that kind of encouragement, which isn't always the norm. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking also about you know, to kind of then push it forward, because I also want to get into like the Algorithmic Justice League. Um, oh, that thing. <laughs> girl, please. Um, you mentioned AJL earlier. But in thinking about, you know, working with some of these tech companies, um, like you're calling them out, right? Like, you know, 
they're in your face. And you even mentioned in the book, right? Like that, you know, MIT and other institutions are very much like, you know, there are scholarships funded by Microsoft, funded by Google, funded by these things. And so are these these organizations. And so it can make it maybe a not so smart move to be existing in this space. Like how receptive have the companies been, you know, and what strategies have you found effective in influencing change in these spaces? Such a great question, series of questions. I think of this notion of, yes, we certainly call out what we see and what the research shows and the research shows bias, right? And it shows bias from named companies and we don't shy away from saying there's bias in this product from this company. And when the results change and we do those audits, we also share that. But for me, it wasn't about naming and shaming. It was about naming and changing, pointing it out so we have language for it. So we're identifying the coded gaze. So we're doing intersectional analysis. So we're doing phenotypic analysis and then using that to inform the next set of decisions, which might not necessarily mean make a better facial recognition system that can be used for mass surveillance. It might mean we don't deploy the system in this particular um, context. What I found were different types of responses. There were companies that were proactive, there were companies that were reactive, and then there were companies that were destructive, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, you, and I go into gory detail about all of that, but I think something else that you pointed out, which is so important, is the relationship of many big tech companies to academic spaces and to the labs, research labs that study AI, machine learning, et cetera, those are often the funders. So if you are critiquing the funders, there is a risk your work will not be funded. I was actually extremely fortunate to be working with uh, Ethan Zuckerman at the Media Lab at the time, because the way the Media Lab was sponsored was through this consortium where companies would pay at least a quarter million dollars to be part of it. And at the time, I think there were, I don't know, 80 companies. They had money, (laughs) right? And But what was nice was that money wasn't tied to just one company. So I did not feel beholden. And so that gave me more freedom to name the companies because there had been past studies of uh, even facial recognition algorithms where they would not, it would be company A, company B, company C, keep my job opportunities, right? (laughs) Understandably so. And so part of the structure I was in allowed me to um, be more explicit than if I had a different type of funding uh, structure that I was in. And then frankly, the fact that I wanted to be a poet of code and my, I did not see for myself the final destination being working at a big tech company or, you know, R&D. And these are very lucrative jobs and career paths that many people take or working in academia in a traditional way, again, 
solid, valid career paths. I had a sense I was going to do something. I didn't know what it was, but it probably wasn't going to be traditional. And so in my mind, I wasn't cutting off future opportunities I wanted, but it would it was a risk, right? And so if if I saw my final destination or a next destination as being at one of these tech companies, I think it would have influenced how I thought about assessing them and what that could mean. Later on, you know, with one of my co-authors, Dr. Timnit Gebru, when she was at Google and she Shout out to Timnit. She was on the podcast. Go listen. Timnit's so cool. That's my sis. And so... As you know that story, right? She's in Google doing her job. Ethics, AI ethics co-lead. She says there are some ethical problems with large language models, the type of models that power what we see with products like ChatGPT that we are now grappling with, right? They were issuing these warning shots very early. And were they um, rewarded? No. Jobs were lost, <laughs> Right. And so that precarity of what does it mean when you call out power and what does it mean when you start to challenge the economic engine? Because in some ways with facial recognition technologies, many of the companies that we were auditing, these weren't their cash cows. Right. So it it meant that the threat of it was a little bit different then if you're going for something that's core to what lays the golden eggs as well. So all of this I wasn't necessarily thinking about. I was approaching it more in a naive way. Like, these systems aren't working and I want to find out. These are the companies <laughs> that we should audit. Later on, like, oh, okay, so I was going out. This was a, definitely a David Goliath uh, situation. And the more, I think there was something helpful for that naive approach. Like, did you guys check? I checked. You should check too. Oh, you got worse numbers? <laughs> kind of thing, right? So there's a part of it where that's part of the story. There's a curiosity. But I still understood these are big tech companies with a lot of power. So I need to come correct. So before we released it to the tech companies, I actually worked with the uh, legal clinic to go through the process and how we did everything so that when we released it, there wouldn't be legal problems and headaches um, on our side. So I had a sense of the stakes, but I also had a bit of a naive approach that was in concert um, as well. So I remember colleagues or, you know, senior scholars, et cetera, so many people would tell me I was brave and I didn't, now I now I understand, right? At the time, I was like, oh, I just wanted, <laughs> I, I, I was like, what's brave about telling the truth? <laughs> and there's brave. a lot brave about telling the truth, but that was in some ways how I was thinking about it then. Mm. And so talk to us a bit about the Algorithmic Justice League. What is the Algorithmic Justice League. Oh, yes. Yeah. So 
mentioned all of this research and I thought there should be an organization, there should be a place for artists, activists, academics, right? Everyday people um, to go and to learn about these systems. When you talk about the coded gaze, this is before 2023, when a lot of people still don't know what AI is, right? And so even what we're talking about just seemed like nerdland, geekville conversation. <laughs> what are they going on about? And what is algorithmic bias? And how do you even pronounce algorithmic in the first place, right? You know, it's seeming really um, foreign. And so part of making the algorithmic Justice League was to raise awareness. That's why we put so much effort into the film uh, Coded Bias, directed by Shalini Kintaya you know, now available on Netflix, ended up being Emmy-nominated because that was an invitation to say, here are stories of people actually experiencing AI bias in their real lives, and this is why it matters. And it shows the origin story of AJL, which is me starting with this white mask experience, being curious, testing uh, big tech giants and finding out, oh my goodness, they too have bias as well. And then wanting to create an organization whose mission it was, was to prevent AI harms. Because bias is one thing, but you could even have perfectly functioning AI systems that make society worse. Right. And so how one. So let's say you have perf perfect facial recognition technology. You said it was biased. Now it's inclusive. Is that the society we want? Imagine you put perfectly functioning facial recognition on a drone with a gun that can now target you. So it's not just how well the technology works, but how is this technology being used and what kind of society do we want to live in? We can all agree that if the technology doesn't even work as it's supposed to be working, it probably shouldn't be in the hands of police, right? So there's that part, but that's not the only part of the conversation. There's the conversation of what does it look like when you now have chilling effects? Because when you go to a protest, and this has happened, right? We saw this after the uh, protest with Freddie uh, Gray in B Baltimore. If police have deployed facial recognition, or you know that's going to be there, right? There's a chilling effect if you know you're being tracked, right? And the FBI acknowledged this even, you know, in 2012 when exploring uh, the potential societal impacts of using things like facial uh, recognition uh, technologies. So I think of this notion of cost of inclusion and cost of exclusion. So we're not just assuming that the solution is to build the technology to be more precise. It's questioning why we're building the technology in the first place. Who has access to it? What are the harms and the risk? Are there appropriate enough mitigations, right? And who's being harmed? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I'm going to stop. <laughs> I obviously have 18,000 things in my head. Um, I know, so much to cover. No, but I know it's just because I'm just kind of flabbergasted at the pernicious nature of technological innovation and how we somehow 
never couple it, as you mentioned it, with like an ethics conversation. Um, in many ways, it just allows for those, um, you know, empowered to just kind of rum ramshod through so many um, spaces, places, lived experiences. Actually, before I ask my next question, girl, should I get clear? Because every time I go to the airport, I'm just like, mm-mm. I'm not paying for you all to, to, to scan my eyes. So it's funny you asked this. We have fly.ajl.org where we've been collecting travelers' experiences of face scans at airports, right? So we, over the summer, we had an intern really do a deep dive analysis. What I see with things like clear are can lead to convenient shackles. So why do you get it? To skip the line, et cetera. But what are you giving up? for that convenience. And also, I think it's really important to not just look at the snapshot use of that technology and that data, but to understand that data can end up in other systems or other people's hands. Let's go to a scenario many people of us are familiar with, having Facebook profiles. Once upon a time, you didn't have tags on Facebook where you had the bounding box for the face and then you could put whose face it was. As we were doing that, we were actually helping to train Facebook's facial recognition systems, right? And later on, they paid a $650 million fine in Illinois because they violated BIPA, the Biometric Information Privacy Act of Illinois, showing that legislation does, in fact, offer some protections and why we need federal uh, legislation when it comes to um, these uh, technology. So I, I think it's important to understand that even if you're uploading your data for one purpose, it can be repurposed in a different way. I think there was an app that used to be called Ever. There, yo, usually once the app is called out, they've changed the name so many times, etc. But there was an app that was a family sharing photos app, right? So like share images of the grandkids with the grandparents sort of thing. I think they needed a pivot. Anyways, long story short, they changed directions and now they're selling their systems to law enforcement, but trained on data that was gathered for this family photo app situation. So going back to should I use Clear, I think the question is how can the data I submit to Clear, such intimate data about me, my biometrics, which are very hard to replace, how can that be used in hands that I don't trust? And when I answer that question for myself, then that gives me the answer for if I want to engage in these systems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about clear. Yeah. Yeah, it was lightly rhetorical, but absolutely. I just I just find it actually really dangerous. And <clears throat> and not that I'm a, a Luddite by any means. Um, and it's not like, girl, they don't even know what I look like. But I but I also have noticed over time as I travel the ways in which design. Mm has been leveraged to make even pre-check lines last longer in order to build up the frustration to go get clear. 
like I've like I've seen that change actually design wise, like in airports, and yeah. so which for me <clears throat> is the is the warning signal, right? Like, what are they trying to get me to do? Why do mm. they want me to do this so badly? Right? Mm. Like, why are they putting me like literally designing lines in a way that builds up frustration in order to anticipate this what? And what mm. and what do they want from this? And I think, you know, as we as individuals, as we move through the world and our lives, like I think it's incumbent on us that we observe the changes that are happening. How is space? being designed in order to create a certain desire. Like, why do I have to walk through first class in order to get to my seat? Mm. Right? Like, there's many ways in which, like, design is meant and is used and leveraged in order to predict, indicate, or kind of push you towards certain types of behavior. And so it was actually the design of airports that taught me that clear was not something that I wanted to be a part of because they were Mm. trying to sell it so hard. Mm, it's too that's easy. Really, that's really insightful, for sure. And in our fly.ajl.org uh, campaign, what we were looking at was seeing, is the TSA even living up to what they claim to do? So one of the claims is there is clear signage about the use of facial recognition technology. So we asked people, did you see the signs? We have the data, right? And I think we're going to put out an official report where you'll see all of the exact numbers. But the majority of the people, they didn't see the signage, right? Or signage was added after the news article came out or, you know, there or signage. It, and also, there's so much variability. Which concourse were you at? Which airline was it? What time of day was it? How busy were the lines? So if you have a ton of people, it might not be as visible as if there are one or two people in that line. How big is the font? And what I saw when I was flying through, I can talk, speak to Boston Logan, right? The signs talk about biometric identity. And nowhere on the sign do you see the term face recognition or facial recognition. So it's also not being explicit to me enough about what is even happening. Or if you want more, you get some small print to go to some website while you're in line in a high stress situation. I was flying to, uh, I was flying overseas uh, this summer for an award show, you know, uh, award ceremony to recognize, you know, the work of the Algorithmic Justice League and all of that. And as I'm about to board this international flight that was delayed by almost an hour, We go behind, uh, I couldn't even actually see the entry, right? And I think because it was some kind of international flight, the way the plane was actually pulled up, it was behind some corner. So all this to say, by the time I finally saw they were using facial recognition, right, at boarding, it was so late in the game to truly respond. Other than hearing them, this was American Airlines say, step up to the camera, you know, so we can scan your face. It was not clear from that kind of description there was any way you could opt out. So I ask, I explicitly ask, can I opt out? The person doesn't say yes or no. He says, can I see your passport? 
since I study this sort of thing, this is my day job. I'm like, as a U.S. citizen, I'm supposed to be able to opt out, right? So I am able to opt out, and the person looks at my passport and then looks at me. The thing is, I was traveling and I was paranoid, and it's still a pandemic, I thought. Anyhow, I had face covering, right? So the person doesn't even look at my full face the alternative, which is to verify you, doesn't happen the way I'm thinking it should happen, right, is you're looking at me. Maybe they thought they saw enough. My hair's unique. I don't know, right? So I, I was like, there's so many things wrong with what happened. And as all of that was happening, that's when I saw the signage. The signage was behind all of this. And I barely had time. I didn't get... I didn't have enough time to read all of it before I even got to the gate agent in the first. And I I am someone who's aware of some of what's going on. The typical person just trying to get on the flight that was already delayed by an hour overseas and you've paid how much money, et cetera, et cetera. So I know I'm taking a risk by even asking and I might not make it to this award ceremony. <laughs> but I was like, this is the very thing I'm being awarded for, right? If not to test and ask the hard questions in difficult um, circumstances. And so all of this, going back to your observations on design, it appears designed for coerced consent, where the narrative can be you agreed. No one forced you. But the design shaped you yeah. to a very specific choice where you have to actively work against it. The person was very explicit not to even say that cons- um, choosing to opt out was a possibility. He's just like, let me see your thing quietly. Because I, wow. I was a little extra. I was like, I would like to opt out. <laughs> <laughs> to get on this play because they were trying to fix the media, the entertainment system. And I was like, eh, well, I guess it's a long enough flight where you do want people entertained, I guess. I don't know. But at least it wasn't mechanical problems. But no, I was like, I would like to opt out. I am an American citizen. <laughs> it almost felt like hands up, don't shoot kind of thing. <laughs> You're insane. Oh Obviously, you're a performer, you know, and you do speak about yourself as a poet of code. Um, <laughs> talk to us a bit about your other, like your creative pursuits outside of this work. Yeah, well, being a poet in general, for the longest time, I thought I could not bring that part of my artistic practice into research that I'm doing around computer science. I spend all this time getting all these degrees, call me Dr. Joy now, right? To be viewed as a credible expert. And I was very worried that bringing in my artistic practice and particularly my poetry would somehow, to some maybe seem like a gimmick or to others, 
be used to lessen or devalue or decredit or discredit the research. And so because of that, it felt like a huge risk when I produced um, with the Ford Foundation, AI Ain't I a Woman? And that's a visual algorithmic audit where I'm showing the faces of iconic women like Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, with iconic women of today, Oprah Winfrey. You can't tell me there aren't enough photos of Oprah Winfrey online, okay. right, for a data set. Michelle Obama, Serena Williams, and seeing tech giants like Amazon labeling them male or not detecting uh, faces or all, all of these other things leading to that poem, AI Ain't I, a woman, and then leading to this notion of an evocative audit. So earlier we were talking about the ways in which the work I've done and what we do with Algorithmic Justice League involves testing uh, tech companies with AI audits, right? So we tested your system. Here are the results. Here are the performance metrics. I realize performance metrics, as nice as they might be for a research paper, right, don't necessarily move the limbic system, right? Don't connect with people on a visceral level. So I wanted to move from performance metrics to performance arts. And performance arts, the whole point was to humanize why algorithmic bias can lead to algorithmic harm, right? Or what it is to experience erasure or what it is to be labeled or mislabeled by a machine. And so that's th that was the exploration of AI ain't I woman, but also my risk of saying, well, I did say I want to be a poet of code now, <laughs> right? What does that actually mean? And will I take that risk to show my vulnerability, to add the emotion, right? And understand that that doesn't have to be in opposition to being a researcher. In fact, it enhances it. And that was what my uh, dissertation for my PhD became this interplay of the algorithmic audit, the technical side, with the evocative audit, the human side, and how both were necessary in a broader project for algorithmic justice. Well, Joy, that sounds like an incredible place to wrap this conversation. I feel like there is a future conversation to be had for sure um but before we wrap up could you let people know where to find you where to find out more about the algorithmic justice league where to purchase said book unmasking ai give us the rundown Oh, thank you. Yes. So if you're interested in learning more about my journey as an artist, a researcher, activist, all the good jazz, you can go to www.unmasking.ai. And there you can see the tour, etc. The book comes out October 31st. It'll be basically available where books are sold, including Amazon, right? <laughs> 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 you can buy it from your local book <laughs> store as well. So use what works for you. I also had the experience of recording my first ever audiobook. So you can get the audiobook as well. So you can figure out all of that if you go to unmasking.ai. If you want to support the Algorithmic Justice League, if you want to prevent AI harms and, you know, free the X coded, you can go to ajl.org. And if you want to know more about me, there's poetofcode.com. And on Instagram? 
on Instagram, I'm at Poet of Code. On Twitter, I am at Jovial Joy. Is it still Twitter? It's X, X. now. On you know, X. last Halloween, since we're talking about Halloween, I dressed up as the ghost of Twitter past. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what did that look like? <laughs> oh, okay. It was cool. I had a digital mask and on the digital mask, you could put anything on it. And so it was the Twitter bird with the eyes out. That was my Halloween costume. X's on the eyes. So I call it Twitter X. Halloween. Wow, you were like actually quite prescient. Um, I thought I was joking X's. around. I thought I was joking around. And then Elon saw it, took the X from the eyes, was like, brilliant. <laughs> See, girl, now you got me out here being dramatic. Okay, Joy, <laughs> before I ask my last question, I would just love to take a moment to acknowledge your work. Um, around really uncovering um, the bias encoded in AI, but also your willingness to push beyond the status quo of even what a career in computer science could look like, you know, and exploring your curiosity from a very young age. You know, we all come from different backgrounds, some supportive, some not supportive. Um, but even through all of that, like you continually show up as your most authentic self over and over and over again. You make the seeming, you know, banal, quite cool, quite interesting. And it's all just in owning and embodying your full self and not subscribing to a predetermined line of actualization that's essentially saying like, girl, you didn't take the straight path. You've carved your own. Um, and I think that's completely, you know, not only admirable, um, but just so important, right? That there, there will be young Black girls who will see you and say, like, I can fully be me, my full intellectual, artistic dramatic <laughs> self, you know, and that is incredible. And so I just want to acknowledge that because it is so powerful. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. I am thrilled to see what you continue to do with your platform, how you uplift and inspire others yourself. And I'm here to support. AJL is here to support as well. Oh, okay, cool. So, okay, last question, Joy. If you had everything at your behest, what is the world you imagine for the future? Whew. The world I imagine for the future is one where you get to decide to pursue what gives you the most joy. That's the world I would hope for the future. And I've been so fortunate that despite living in a society that would tell me that I am less than, that I'm not worthy, I've been able to pursue that path, but I don't want it to have to be a struggle. It is your birthright. And I want a world where your birthright is the ground truth. Mm. And so it is. Thank you so much, Dr. Thank you. Ulamwini. And there you have it. 
a powerful conversation that took us from the world of creative exploration to the real-world implications of technology's hidden biases. Dr. Joy's journey from coding in a white mask to unearthing the coded gaze has illuminated the critical need for ethics and fairness in AI systems. Let us know your thoughts over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com and the Institute of Black Imagination on YouTube. And if you'd like the inside scoop of what we're cooking up over here, including upcoming guests, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter. The link is down there in the show notes. In many ways, we're all independently operating algorithms creating our reality from a collective data set of information. The only question is, what are you paying attention to? Until next time, stay curious and keep dreaming. Dreaming.